If you think you can't bear another film about COVID-19, I get it. But I encourage you to make an exception for the latest work by the Chinese-American director, Nanfu Wong. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Nanfu Wong grew up in China and emigrated to the United States 10 years ago in her 20s to attend film school. She debuted with the film Hooligan Sparrow about a Chinese dissident that caused Nanfu to get her first taste of pressure from Chinese authorities. She talked about the experience two years ago on Pure Nonfiction, episode 115. I think the first shocking moment was the week after I went back to China and started filming the protest. And my family suddenly called me and asked, what are you doing? Where are you? The national security agents called and asked all about you. And they had no idea where I was. And that was when I realized I was being monitored. And they even reached out and discovered who I, who I was, who my family was, and contacted them. And so fast forward to three months later when I finished filming. The day before I left China, I was interrogated by the national security agents for five hours. And I lied to them. I secretly recorded their interrogation and put part of the interrogation in the film. That was her first film, Hooligan Sparrow. Her next project in China was One Child Nation, about the country's policy to limit childbirth. She directed the film with Jialing Shang and was again subjected to heavy surveillance. For her next projects, Nanfu was focusing outside of China. But that changed in January 2020, when Nanfu was visiting her mother in China. The plan was for Nanfu to leave her two-year-old son with her mother while she took a work trip to the Sundance Film Festival to be a juror. But when Nanfu arrived at the festival, news was breaking from China that the city of Wuhan was going on lockdown for the coronavirus. Nanfu's husband, Michael Shade, got on the next plane to bring their son back. Nanfu became obsessed with what was being reported about the virus in Chinese media and which voices were being censored. She hired several Chinese camera people to be her eyes on the ground in Wuhan and set up a careful system to get footage safely out of the country. Her new film is called In the Same Breath, and it's different from other COVID documentaries that take a more observational approach. Nanfu synthesizes a vast number of sources to create a penetrating essay about government control of information, both in China and in the United States. Her analysis looks at missed opportunities in those critical early months that might have changed the course of the disease. The film is produced by her previous collaborator, Jialing Shang, and co-edited by Nanfu's husband, Mike. The film is now available on HBO Max, I started our conversation by asking Nanfu about the pressure she's experienced on her past films and what she prepared for this time. There were a lot of things that I learned um, during the making of A Hooligan Sparrow and The One Child Nation. I think they both prepared me and um, the team, and Jalen is working with me on this one too, the team to... Uh, to take as much precautions as possible when we were doing in the same breath, um, whether it's encrypted messages or building platform that's encrypted to uh, for for footage transfer. But still, I would say this was surprising to all of us in terms of the level of censorship and restriction and surveillance that 
um, Wuhan, the government and the Chinese government, central government put on um, in Wuhan that made the making of the film extremely challenging. I've never experienced this level of censorship, both from the government and from the people themselves. Um, it was the first time. And I only anticipate going forward making a documentary film that's political or just about social issues in China would be more and more difficult if if the take is critical. So among the different challenges you're going to be facing on this project, you've got people on the ground who you've contacted remotely uh, and enlisted um, to to work for you. What were what were things that they were experiencing or what were things that you had to caution them uh, about? Or maybe you didn't have to caution them because they were well aware of what the challenges were. Well, uh, we ended up having so many cinematographers and um, they all had different political views and it's a pretty wide spectrum. And someone on one end of the spectrum would be complete patriotic complete pro-government and thinking everything the Chinese government does was really good and wouldn't do anything that they think would make the government look bad. And we have somebody on the other end of the spectrum really from have years of um, activism experience and um, had seen all the cover up and the issues that um, we've seen during the pandemic as well. So it's like talking to this, this range of people and telling them, uh, to work on the film, it really like, uh, it's a very delicate conversation. So with the people pro-government, even by me introducing who I am and where I live, it's a, it's, it's a delicate conversation to start by saying where I came from and how I became a documentary filmmaker and what my goal in making documentary films are, rather than just say, hey, my name is Nanfu Wang and you know, I made Who Can Spare One Nation. I couldn't even mention those because I don't know how people would react to films like Who Can Spare One Child Nation if they are complete pro-government. So there was one case, one camera person, he used to be in the military. Um, and I knew that anybody who, was a soldier who had gone through the military experience could be extremely pro-government because that's the type of education and um, information they received. So when he started working on this project, I was very concerned. I told him like I assigned uh, tasks that are not sensitive at all. Like go film the drone shots of the city, go film this uh, celebra uh, celebration of the government. And then after months we worked together I, we talked more and more and I felt I should tell him more about myself. Um, so one day I gathered just like I thought this was time. I told him, hey, you know what? I made a film before and it's called Hooligan Sparrow and it's about this. Would you be interested in watching it? I will be sending you a private link. And I sent and then my feeling is either he would quit working on this or the trust is built enough that I didn't believe that he would go report to the authority, which I wouldn't have told them in the first conversation because that was one of the concerns. But after seeing it, he was like, oh my God, I never knew this. And this is a new to me. And he wanted to see One Child Nation and I sent it to him. And then after that, he, he, his previous experience is mostly working like in commercial and getting paid a wedding videography and things like that, commercial. And after this, he's like, I wanted to do independent documentary. Can you tell me like how to get into, how to do this? Like, this is what is meaningful. And then I, what I've done before, like I 
don't care anymore, and I just wanted to do this. And since then, I've introduced him to help other independent documentary filmmakers making um, films, and he wanted to do it himself. So that was like taking a chance, because I never know. And there are cinematographers that never uh, turn around, that they, the only motivation they would be working on this film is they charge three times higher like their standard rate. They were like, okay, we want to get paid more. And we, that's the sole motivation. We want to make money out of this because of our access. Um, and then there are other uh, people, the activists, more savage um, activists turned um, cinematographers now take on more of like learn how to use camera and to become a documentary filmmaker in a way. So knowing how much pressure uh, you faced in the past, uh, you've described uh, the last time I interviewed you, the way the government would pressure not only you, but also your family members um, uh, for the films that you had made. I wonder, you know, what kind of thought you put into the people who are now collaborating with you and pressure that that they might experience, or for that matter, people who are in the film, some of whom who give their names uh, in the film. Yeah, so um, one thing that I learned from making One Child Nation, and I think somehow uh, from Hooligan Sparrow as well, is the government, after One Child Nation was out, never went to anybody who was who appeared in the film other than my family members. And the, the reason to come to my family members was to try to uh, indirectly uh, threaten me or send a message to me, but they never talked to anyone who was featured in the film. And uh, I thought about why, and for in the same breath, it's the same. So far, no one who appeared in the film had been contacted. And if you looked at it, it's really piece by piece, that story the person told is not sensitive, it's not critical, it's not subversive. And there were like a few people, uh, Payan, um, one guy who was, but he made a decision, he was on BBC, he appeared on um, a lot of Western news to do that, and he's been contacted by the government all the time. And the rest of the people, uh, people like the clinic owner, the regular people, the stories they told are not, analytical, they shared their experience. And then in the end, they arrived at the conclusion that our government did everything they could and the best they could, and they praised the government. So I think even if the authority got a hold of this film and saw it, um, we rec they recognize that. They recognize what made the film critical is the editorial choices of how you juxtapose information rather than the pieces of the information itself uh, alone. So I think that's one of the reasons that the people, ordinary people appeared in the film are safe in a way. And the collaborators did, uh, several of them got in trouble uh, during the making of the film, being contacted by the government when they realized they were working with me uh, on the film. And some of them had to quit this project um, and give the authority everything they knew at the time. Um, and some of them, one, the most savage activist turned uh, documentary filmmaker. Um, she continued working uh, now on other projects that are sensitive as well. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, one decision we made is also by limiting how much each collaborator knows. So if they knew just that piece they are filming, 
then if they were questioned, there is reasonable deniability that they don't know what re the rest of it is. And they can give the authority everything they know, and it's not incriminating to them. At some point, you became aware that the government did know you were making a film and were putting some pressure on, uh, on, pe on people to stop it. How did that or did that change the way you were going about making the film or did that threaten to disrupt, you know, sources of, uh, of information or the, you know, the way you gathered footage? Yeah, so that happened in March, April and May in different times. March was the first person who got questioned and we were like, wow, where did this information leak and how did they find out? And of course, the first thing we did is to transfer every like uh, cloud storage where we collaborate encrypted message platform, completely delete everything or the um, uh, and then start a new start a new platform from somewhere else and uh, disable all the email addresses that we've been using and I wasn't using my personal like none of us was using our personal um, account to communicate on this it's all a new one that we set up so a new set of uh, establishing a new set of a communication and that person didn't work on the, on this anymore uh, and it's uh, the person's choice um, or that person's email was given to the authority. So we knew who are exposed. And then we told those people and then we, they stopped working. And we, we had a discussion of if the other person is being contacted, what that person would tell the police. But so, for some reason that they didn't contact any further, that was it, like that end. And then when the next person being contacted, we did the same. We, um, cut down, we kind of evaluate what the authority knew at that point, and then cut off of the, all of the communication on that end, and then start something new and evaluate, okay, they know this is compromised and we need to give up on this end, yeah. I mean, you obviously have a degree of uh, of protection being based in uh, the U.S. that you don't have to, you know, fear a lot of the things that uh, that you would if you were actually working in uh, China. Um, but I assume that you still must carry a lot of, you know, stress about the people who you're uh, working with and um, and the future of the project uh, itself. And I mean, I wonder if you can talk about, you know, how. You know how, how you handle those feelings of of knowing that a that a government as powerful as China is kind of working against you in in trying to make your film. Um, during the production and the post production and release are different type of worries. During the production, it's more of like would the collaborators be okay? Would they be in trouble? How can we prevent that as much as possible? How can we um, be? Uh, both like taking risks, but at the same time, um, taking only calculated risks. Um, and, um, and then post, post uh, after the release, the more of the threats focused on my family. And that does um, each time it gets more real. Like I feel like each film is a step further and the threat is more real than the last time. And, and I often, just to discuss with Mike, my husband too, is like, is this film worse than the last one to the government? Are they taking it more seriously? Because, you know, One Child Nation is about policy, no longer about the one individual women's rights activist. And this one is, 
is unfolding and is they care so much about the image right now is it getting worse um and their threats to my family is getting more and more aggressive and that doesn't give me pause in terms of like what could I do next or can I do something? And my family put in pressure on me uh, too. Right now, my family would beg me not to do anything more and not to make any film. So uh, it does affect my decision making in terms of like what to do next and um, how, uh, how to make a decision, which I still don't know yet. Um, and um, that part is unknown. But in terms of the collaborators, um, since the release and since the finish of production, so far I've been feeling good. And if they haven't contacted them yet, it, it pretty much, I don't think it will. And we did the contract, the payment were not sent to the directed person. So there is no trace of their real names. There is all like, third person, fourth person until you finally get to the right person. So um, if anything, they wouldn't be able to find who that person is. Uh, it's like you have to develop uh, CIA level skills. <laughs> Sometimes I found it ironic because we are not criminals, but the activity that we are doing almost seem like like money rendering and sending it like it goes through four rounds until to the final destination. Uh, it was ironic that. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about one theme in the film, which is your analysis of the way uh, the way China, let's start with them, felt the need to tell positive stories and to um, to couch their efforts in a uh, in a propaganda uh, campaign. And you talk about the danger of emphasizing positive stories is that it can be a distraction from facing harder truths. Um, but I uh, I wonder about the motives for China to tell positive stories about its efforts to control uh, coronavirus in light of the fact that um, the Trump administration and, uh, you know, and a lot of U.S. policymakers were seeking to blame China and and that it, it does become kind of a, um, you know, a, a xenophobic uh, dynamic of uh, of of blaming China for uh, coronavirus, and in in that context, you know, maybe there is some value to telling positive uh, stories about um, about what uh, China was trying to do. So I wonder how, how you think about those things. Well, it's really interesting because um, if the film is about China alone, um, if in the same breath as solely and um, purely focused on China, I can see how the film would be taken advantage by a lot of, um, uh, you know, anti-Asian people and immediately grab onto it and say, look, that is true. China is, uh, is, um, is all their fault and they did horrible things. And um, I think that's why I really, it, when the outbreak hit the U.S. in March, I immediately and first like was confronted by all the questions and then two also immediately recognized that it's very important to include the US as well. I think 
it was unfortunate that both countries have taken on this competition and almost a propaganda competition in the way to say, look, we did better in one way and you did worse in another way. Therefore, our system is better. And that created a huge misunderstanding between the Chinese people and American people because their leaders have been promoting that narrative and which in inspire the nationalism within uh, its own country domestically. It's almost like by, um, by pointing at the target to the other country to look at the other country, it avoids the examination of its own problems. Um, so I think um, looking at its own issues, it doesn't have to compel and contrast doesn't have to say, well, China did good in this part or because by focusing and approving that, it is, it is encouraging authoritarian um, government. It is to say, well, I can see some value in this, therefore we can uh, forgive or overlook um, what had gone wrong. It doesn't have to be that way uh, by acknowledging all the mistakes that in different countries we all made in the world doesn't have to say we should look at what is good because i don't think um, that is good the the positive image that is being built is exactly what the narrative of the chinese government wanted the world to see and then it, therefore to ignore what what led to that problems and only focus on how they have uh, solved um, some of the issues in a way. And that's a false narrative to me. Uh, I mean, you referred to the way in which this started out as a film about China, then became a film about the U.S. Uh, alongside China as coronavirus moved to the U.S. And I wonder what it was like for you shaping this film, you know, with a constantly changing uh, story. Um, you know, when when did you reach a point where you felt like, okay, I can, I can create a narrative around this that um, that isn't going to look outdated a month after uh, the film comes out? It was May last year um, that I felt no matter what happened afterwards, this is a central theme of the film, and I know this is a film. And to me, it wasn't a film trying to track how COVID developed and how many death tolls we have had in the world. It's not about uh, when vaccine would come out or whether the vaccine rate would be how much. Um, in March, the film experienced the major shift, which uh, I, I became um, fascinated in understanding my own biases towards China, towards the US, and trying to understand why this would have happened in a democratic country that I would never imagine it would happen. So the rest of the filmmaking was trying to answer that question. And to me, it has nothing to do with COVID, the virus itself. It's more of the politics behind all of this and trying to understand what led us to where we are um, politically. And um, I was you, looking for answers through filmmaking. And I feel like in April and May is where I found uh, those answers, and, which is looking at the misinformation and disinformation and how invisible, but yet how um, just how fast it spreads in the US as well. Um, and it's as dangerous as the virus, if not more so, uh, more dangerous than the virus, but shares some of the same quality of being invisible, being 
you know, extremely contagious and takes from one person to spread to another person. And soon, you know, it spreads to thousands of people. So seeing the reopening protests in May that erupted from all over the country and realizing how we arrived at that place, to me, that's the film. And whatever happened after May only, I think, confirms our um, um, to, to the central themes and the thesis of the film. So I wasn't worried or wasn't thinking I need to check to see how it ends because pretty much that period is what the film um, wanted to explore, the questions that became um, obvious during those months. I want to ask about the editing of the film that uh, you did alongside your husband, Mike Shade. Um, there's so much information that's being synthesized in this film. I was just watching some of it today. And, you know, even just the, the segment where you're looking at uh, the reporting of deaths or or or, um, or coronavirus cases uh, in New York City. And you've got sound bites, you know, from the radio, you know, day after day. So there's two sides to that. You know, one is the incredible feat of information collecting and uh, uh, that that you undertook. And then it's synthesizing that um, in the editing. Can, can you talk about both of those processes? I'm glad you recognize it. And I hope people <laughs> seeing like a montage of like five seconds of uh, voice is actually work of like a month, <laughs> like five people. Um, from early on the China part, I realized that there is a discrepancy between the official narrative and then the reality. And juxtaposing the two is always a goal to show what the government is saying, uh, what the people are learning, and versus what is the reality. So from the China part, we are collecting every single piece of news from late um, uh, November. From November, we look at the November, December 2019 to, to find the traces of what the government knew and when, and then huge, massive timeline of each day. We have a group of very, very talented uh, young filmmakers working as archival researchers, um, assistant editors, and they themselves, they are, you know, NYU documentary graduate, SBA graduate document graduate, uh, like major students. They all have the skills in making their own films. I think several of your students were your students um, at SBA too. They shoot, they edit, they are filmmakers themselves, but they're working on this. They're reviewing every single news from every single channel and make a timeline. Um, you know, January 1st, what did the officials say and what, when? And I think we have a museum, we could build a museum of a collective <laughs> database. Seriously, like it's just a ton. And then, um, uh, you know, carving out of a timeline and we have uh, fact checkers because it's extremely important to get the timeline right and which day, what number and what happened, who is set, you know, uh, uh, um, Anthony Fauci said it on March 10th not to wear a mask. It's different than if he had said it on February 10th. So uh, that, those are all important. So we fact checked all of them and eventually selected what are the most uh, crucial milestones and included in the in the film 
your film ends in uh, January 2021, and now here we are uh, eight months later um, with it coming out, and, and we're going through, you know, fresh cycles of, uh, of trying to cope with, um, with COVID-19 and Delta variants and so forth. I wonder, um, with the gestation of this film, with it coming out now, uh, you know, if if you think about the 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 issues it brings up in in any different way than when you finished it in January, um, n- not really. I just hope that by now is almost a year and a half from them, and people uh, more than a year and a half, and, and then I hope people would be willing to look back and examine the issues and um, to start thinking in a reflective way, to start think it, think about it in an active way because um, we all experienced it. And I think sometimes it's hard to look at it, um, but I think it would help all of us to examine um, the issues and the actions that led us to where we are today. Do you have a sense with uh, your films, Hooligan Sparrow and One Child Nation, how much they get seen in in an underground way in in China? And and if you have expectations of this film being seen in China? I don't have the numbers, but I do remember um, when One Child Nation uh, uh, was released on Amazon, the within days or weeks there were pirated versions in China and then several links come up and each of those links had like 30,000 or more downloads and then that would get shut down and then when another one would come up and equally would have very quick downloads uh, a month so I don't know um, how many exactly people seen it um, and I certainly hope that people in China would be able to see in the same breath too. When you say they get shut down, a link would be taken out by you assume uh, government censors. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All their websites were monitored by the state censors, so there was no individuals who would have the power to do that. Or yeah, in China. Yeah. Um, have you been able to share uh, in the same breath with the people who worked on it, or or people who are in it, and and what were those reactions like? Um. People who worked on it felt, uh, I think this probably is true with um, anybody who worked on a film, felt extremely uh, gratifying to see the work and to see how it uh, comes out and felt a sense of pride that they contributed and then felt it was true. Um, Chinese people who see the sex segments of themselves felt it's very truthful and um, in a way, and then some people we did show the full film because we are able to, uh, the security uh, reasons that we were able to show it to several individuals, the full film. And um, um, some comments were really um, rewarding to me that they said that this is a collective memory of people in Wuhan. And this is from the people in the film who lived in Wuhan to say that this is, they felt this is a collective memory. thank Nanfu Wan for speaking with me. Her new film, In the Same Breath, is now playing on HBO Max.
thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Norden-Swan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.